Numbers 27, verse 12. 2712, or you can follow along in the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, you can follow along. All the scriptures are right there. And uh, while you're turning there, this morning we are wrapping up our series that we've been going through in the book of Numbers. And uh, last week we had one of those stories that it just seems very familiar because we, we kind of keep seeing it in the book of Numbers. Every Every time something good happens in the life of the Israelites, they turn right back around and they lose their patience, they lose their faith, they lose their trust. And over and over and over again, it just kind of repeats. God does something for the people and then the people grumble and complain and get impatient. And it just keeps happening over and over. And this time we see that God responds by sending these snakes to these poisonous snakes to bite the people and some of the people die and uh, those who don't they come before Moses and say guess what we we know we sinned before God and before you and uh, please ask God to uh, take this away from us or, or to help us with this and God doesn't take away the source of the poison but what he does is he offers an opportunity to be healed and the way they do this is uh, they take this bronze serpent and they put it on this pole and uh, when the people would look upon it, they would be healed. He took something that was bad and turned it into something that was good. But it wasn't just simply a, hey, we're going to plant this here and as soon as you look at it, you're going to be healed and that's all there is to it. No, it required something. It required faith to believe that when they looked upon the serpent, God was actually going to heal them. And it required obedience. They had to look upon this bronze serpent. And really, I think the, the story there for us is, one, we have, to be, we have to have faith. We have to have faith and we have to be obedient. But we can also look at that bronze serpent. We can remember that just as that healed the people who had that poison, Christ was the remedy for the poison that is in our veins, the sin that is in us, that sinful nature. He's the remedy for that, him going and dying on the cross, his blood that was shed for us. And now we fast forward a little bit to Numbers 27. And as we wrap up our series in Numbers this week, next week we're going to start in Deuteronomy. But as we wrap up here, we, we wrap up in a point of transition. Moses is approaching the end of his life, a life that will be 120 years old when he goes. He's nearing the end and he's looking at the future and he's looking at his people and wondering what happens next. And we see a changing of the guard. And as we look at this passage this morning that's all about this transition, this changing of the guard, I think it's just packed full of important things for us to think about, important things for us to dwell upon and to recognize. And so we're going to start in verse 12. And it says this, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you shall also be gathered to your people, as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. And so we see here from the beginning that, in the beginning of our text, that God is telling Moses he is going to go up 
onto this mountain, and the mountain is Mount Nebo, and he's going to climb up this mountain, and he's going to overlook the promised land. And he's going to see this land that is being promised to God's people. And you know, I've heard it said about this story with Moses, God letting him go up on the mountain and to overlook the promised land that he's going to give his people. And I've heard people say that God is just cruel. God is cruel here. He's going to let Moses see this land that he knows Moses is never going to enter into. Isn't that God just rubbing Moses' face in the fact that he is not going to enter in to the promised land? See, I think it's the opposite of that. I think what God is doing here is something so full of compassion to even though he's not going to be entering into the promised land, he's going to get to see the land that he's been praying so fervently for, for his people. Remember your promise. Remember your promise. Remember your promise. God is going to allow him to see that. God's going to show him that. But I think there's another reason for showing him this promised land. And again, think about it over and over and over again. Moses prayed, God, remember your covenant. Bring them into this promised land that you have promised them over and over and over again. He prays for this. I think God is showing Moses the promised land here to remind him of his faithfulness. I think God is showing him the promised land to show Moses, Moses, guess what? This land that you see, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I've promised. I'm going to give them this land, this land that you see here that you've been praying for. They're going to enter into that land. It's already done. As long as they're obedient, they follow me. That promised land is theirs. God is reminding Moses of his faithfulness. And it says, after he sees this promised land, he's going to be gathered to his people. I love this way of describing it. You know, God could have said, Moses, you're going to die, and you're going to be buried. But he doesn't. He says, you're going to be gathered to your people. I think it reminds us here that there is a future. There is life after death. Death is not the end for those who believe. You see, the same statement was said to Isaac. It was said to Jacob. It was said to Aaron, and it said to Moses. And then we see a reminder of why Moses isn't going to go into the promised land. It's because of his sin in Numbers chapter 20. Moses rebelled against God's word and what he told him to do, and he did not uphold God as holy before the people, before their eyes. And I think this is a great reminder here. You know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the consequences for our sins, the consequences for our action, the consequences of not upholding God as holy. But I think this is a good time to remind everybody that God is, in fact, a holy God. God is holy. Everything about him, his attributes, his characteristics, the things he does, he is a holy God. The definition for the word holy is pure and morally blameless. And that's who God is. God is without sin. God is pure. God is holy. And he should be treated as such. And yet I think the problem is today is that we don't really think about God's holiness Matter of fact, I would say many people, they, we just don't fear God. We don't look at him as holy. We don't look at him with the awe and the reverence that he is due. We don't treat him or his word with the reverence that we should. We don't hold him up as holy, and that is who he is. He is holy. First Samuel 2, 2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. 
There is no rock like our God. Psalm 99.9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. He is holy and the angels, the heavenly host, they proclaim his holiness. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Revelation 4.8 says it like this, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so if the angels and the heavenly host proclaim God's holiness, why don't we? Why don't we proclaim the holiness of God? Do we listen to and live by the word of God, every word, knowing that it is holy? Everything he says and everything he does is holy. Every word that he has penned, every word that he has said is holy. He is holy. And I don't know about you, but when you think about that, it becomes a little daunting. It becomes a little daunting knowing that as I stand in the presence of God, I fail to live up to that holy standard in which he is set. And we all do. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of his holy standard. But we can rejoice knowing that Jesus goes before the Father on our behalf. Hebrews 9.24 For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He is holy, and we need to remember and think of his holiness. But then we go into verses 15 through 17. And it said, Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. And I think what Moses does here is pretty powerful. And I think it's pretty powerful because he could have done what I think most of us might have done, probably would have done, and just fallen into a state of self-pity. He could have been, woe is me, I'm not going to get to enter into this land that I had been going through all of these things and I don't get to see. And he could have just entered into this self-pity that we do, right? When things don't go according to our plan or the way we think they should, our direction, we start to be woe is me. And he could have done the same thing. Because make no mistake, he wanted to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy 3, 23 through 27, he says, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of 
Pishkah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. And he could have entered into self-pity, but instead what he does is he goes before God and he asks God to appoint a new leader over the people. Appoint a new leader to lead these people, to guide these people, to direct these people, to take these people into the promised land. And I think there's a lot of important statements here. First, he says, God of the spirits of all flesh. It's a description of God that is kind of an uncommon one. We only see it here and in number 1622, where it says, and they fell on their faces and said, oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? This phrase, God of the spirits of all flesh, this is a phrase that would refer to the fact that God is all-knowing. He knows all things. He knows all things about his creation, his people, all of these things. He is all-knowing. He's omniscient. And I love how Robert Jameson describes this title of God, saying, the author of all the intellectual gifts and moral graces with which men are endowed and who can raise up qualified persons for the most arduous duties and the most difficult situations. And I think what Moses is really getting at here when he's asking God to appoint a leader is he's saying, Lord, choose a leader because you know the hearts of the people. You know the hearts. You know what is on their hearts. You know what weighs on their hearts. You know their minds. You know what is in each person. So God, you choose Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And in 1 Samuel 16.7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I think what Moses is doing is wise, asking God to choose a leader and really, this is the same approach we see taken later by the apostles in the book of Acts when Matthias is added to their number. In Acts 1, 24 through 25, when it says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And you see, I spent a lot of time in retail. <laughs> kind of, I think, was maybe born into retail Dad worked in retail for a long time. A lot of my mom's family worked in retail for a long time. I worked in retail in high school and uh, just recently, a few years ago, working in, at Walmart and Coca-Cola. And one of the things that I've learned is it seems when people choose leaders, it's based on things such as outward appearance. Oh, that person has the right image, the right look, the right charisma to be a leader. Sad thing is, I see it kind of creep into the church today as well. Churches that pick leaders based on they're the right image or the right charisma. On the opposite side of that, I see sometimes people being chosen who maybe aren't the right people to go into those various ministries, aren't right for those specific tasks. And I think the reason we see this is because people forsake spending time in prayer, seeking God's will, asking God to put on their heart the person that knows their heart. God knows their heart. Instead of asking and praying, God, show us that person that you want us to lead. We look on the outward appearance. We only look at experiences instead of seeking God's will. 
And Moses is asking God here to choose someone who would not just lead the people as a military unit, but as a nation who would lead and guide the people. And he uses the term shepherd, a shepherd who would lead the sheep. The people needed a shepherd, for without one, they would be lost and scattered and helpless, Ezekiel 34, 5. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They needed a leader who would help lead them into the promised land, who would take care of them, who would go to God on their behalf. And here's the thing, we need the exact same thing. We needed the exact same thing. We were sheep without a shepherd. And see, here's the thing, Moses was both shepherd and preach, leader and priest. And there wouldn't be anyone like him for a while, but ultimately we know that the true shepherd would come. The one who would lead and guide and direct us, who would be a sacrifice that would bring us reconciliation with God. The one who would lead us into the promised land, that good shepherd who is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. And you don't have to take my word for that. Jesus says that himself. John 10, 7 through 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own knows me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. God has given us the good shepherd the good shepherd who loves, who cares for his people, who laid down his life for his people, was the sacrifice for his people. Jesus is the good shepherd. And so the question remains, how will God respond to Moses' request? In verse 18 through 23, it tells us, it says, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At this they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. And so we see it, the man who would be responsible for this task, the man that God has appointed to be that leader who would take the baton from Moses, and it's Joshua. 
He would be responsible for leading this people into the promised land, being the leader for the people. And it really makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, we've seen Joshua in the past and the things that he's done. In Exodus 17, 8 through 10, it shows how Joshua fought with Amalek. In Exodus 24, 13, we see that Joshua was an, Joshua was an assistant to Moses. In Numbers 14, 30 and 38, it shows us that Joshua was along with Caleb. Those two were the only two spies who encouraged the people to listen to God and to take the land that was promised to them. And here's the thing, Moses had been pouring into Joshua, whether he was intending to or not. The scripture doesn't tell us that, you know, he took him on as a, I'm going to be your mentor, but it does show that being an assistant to him, he was there for all of these big events. He was there for all the big moments. He was there in Egypt during the plagues. He was there when they crossed the Red Sea. He would have been there with Moses during Moses' highs and Moses' lows. And he was pouring into him, whether he realized it or not. But I want you to notice something here. All of Joshua's accolades, all of the things that he had done, all of those things that you would think, okay, this is what makes him a leader, that's not what God brings up here. No, what God doesn't say, hey, he's a great military leader. Hey, he was a great assistant to you. Hey, he did all of these things. He doesn't say that. No, instead the reason given as to why he is appointed as leader is because he is filled with the spirits. He's filled with the spirits. And I think the reason that he was so important in these other places, the reason he did the things that he did in these other places is because he was filled with the spirits. He listened and he did as he was commanded, as he was instructed, he did as he was told. And some asked the question, I didn't think the Spirit worked in people until the New Testament, right? Like that's when we see the Spirit is in the New Testament. But we see examples in the Old Testament where the Spirit came upon people and it might seem like a more selective and temporary way than it does in the New Testament. But there is the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He came into the life of David in 1 Samuel 16, 12 through 13, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. <laughs> Saul was a man who had the Spirit and lost the Spirit. 1 Samuel 10.10, when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Various judges and the book of Judges had the Spirit come upon them. And I think there's a good lesson to be learned here, and godly leaders are filled with the Spirit. They listen to the Spirit. They seek His guidance. Same for anybody who serves. You should, be, or you should have a desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But really, I think it should be a desire of all believers to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be obedient to the Spirit. But I think, sadly, something is lacking. I read this quote the other day from A.W. Tozer. I thought it was quite powerful. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. 
Man, are we seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live by the Holy Spirit, to follow His guidance and His direction? And so let's talk about the Holy Spirit for a minute. Let's not, I want to clarify something so we don't get confused. For those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, for those who believe, we receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory. But here's the thing. There's a difference between receiving the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. I love how God questions makes this distinction. It says, being filled with the Holy Spirit, submitting to the Spirit's control is an ongoing experience in the Christian life. Being led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, and keeping step with the Spirit, spiritual parallels to being filled with the Spirit are all biblical descriptions of the goal of Christian discipleship. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be empowered and controlled by the Spirit, to experience renewal, obedience, boldness to witness and share the gospel and freedom from the power of sin. There's a difference between receiving the Holy Spirit and being filled and constantly seeking the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And here's the thing, we know that the Holy Spirit is an helper, he's an advocate in our lives. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. And here's the thing, if we're willing to let him, he will lead us. He can help us to walk in righteousness and not to gratify the sins of the flesh. Galatians 5, 16 through 18, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And this is a really important thing to understand, being led by the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit, because this shows us who we are and to whom we belong. Romans 8.14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But that's the thing, isn't it? A lot of times we're just not obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We choose not to listen. We choose to do our own thing. Instead of walking by the Spirit, we choose to gratify our flesh. We choose to live by our flesh. We choose to do the things that our flesh tells us to do. And that's the thing. Our sin hinders the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but it's obedience to God that the filling of the Spirit is maintained. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5.18. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Why does this matter? Well, that phrase, be filled, is a continuous present tense, which means continuously be filled, continually be obedient. We need to continue to be obedient to the Spirit, to His leading. We should seek that desire to be filled by the Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? When we've got this fleshly desire, this sinful nature, how in the world do we seek to be filled with the Spirit, obedient to the Spirit, led by the Spirit? Well, I think Paul sums it up pretty well in Romans 8, 5. For those who are living according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Are we setting our minds on the, thing of the, on the things of the Spirit, seeking His will, His guidance? 
And this leads to one more question I've heard people ask. How do I know when I'm filled with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit? Again, I think Paul gives the answer in Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. For living by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, obeying the Spirit's leading will produce fruits that keep with the Spirit. Those fruits will be evident. And so, this is why he's choosing Joshua. He's filled with the Spirit. But then we go on and it talks about his appointments. Here's what you're to do. You're to appoint him. You're to give him some of your authority. You are to do this in front of the people. You are to lay hands upon him. And really, I think of this as this commissioning, this ordination, if you will. And I think this is something that is a thing that's to be uh, taken seriously. This idea of commissioning, ordination, it's something that should be taken seriously. It's something that should be done after much prayer and seeing that someone is ready. And I think that's why Paul says what he says in 1 Timothy 5.22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't be so quick to lay hands on people and send people out who aren't ready. And here's the thing, and you've probably seen this at some point in your life. You know you can go online and you can Google ordination certificates, and you can take a one-day class and you can get ordained, and you can never open the Bible, and you can get an ordination certificate, you can do your friend's wedding, and then all is good. They're all over the place. When I think about that, I think it shows that we've lost a little bit of the importance of what it means to setting people apart for Christian service. And I think a great example of what this looks like is in Acts 13, verses two through four. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. The Holy Spirit, you see what he does here, he sets Barnabas and Saul apart. And then what do the people do? They fast and they pray and they lay their hands on them and the church and the spirit sends them off. This is the biblical picture of what it means to commission. And this is what they're to do for Joshua in front of the people. But we see one important piece of information here. This relationship that he's going to have with Eleazar, the priest, Joshua is not going to have the same access to the presence of the Lord as Moses did. But we're going to see this important relationship here between Joshua and the priest. Eleazar, he's going to reveal God's will to Joshua through the Urim. Urim. This was a gemstone along with the Thummim stone, which would be on the breastplate, of the, uh, the breastplate that the priest would wear. How this worked is unknown. Some believe that God would cause these stones to light up in varying patterns to reveal his decision, while others believe that these stones would have uh, a marking on them that would identify yes or no or true or false, and they would keep them in a pouch, and when they would pray and seek God's will, they would pull them out, and whatever it said would be the direction they were to go. It doesn't tell us, but we see that this is what they were to, or to do to receive God's will, and here we see that Moses does everything that God told him to do. He commissions him in front of the people. He lays his hands on him, lays both his hands on him, and commissions him as the Lord directed him to do. 
And so as we wrap up numbers, I want to focus on just a couple of things that I think stands out here in this text to me. I think the first thing is this. God's plan doesn't cease. God's plan doesn't cease. We're seeing this transitional period and Moses is about to be you know, gathered into his people and Joshua is going to take his place and God's will, God's plan, God's purpose is going to continue on. God keeps his plan and it does not fail. Moses did what God called him to but it was his time to go and God's plans continue on. And the truth is, this morning you know as well as I do, we're not going to live forever. Someday our earthly body will cease to exist, but guess what? God's plan, God's will continues on. Psalm thirty-three, eleven says it like this, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And here's the thing, we are here right now in this moment, we're not promised tomorrow, but we are here today and so the question I would ask, knowing that we are here today and knowing that someday we won't be, but God's plan continues on, with the time that we have, what are you using it for? The time that you have, what are you doing with it? Are you praying that God would raise up new leaders? Are you praising that, are you praying that God would bring up that next generation of believers to continue his work in the church and his kingdom? Are we pouring into others around us? Are we pouring into other believers around us? Are you pouring into the next generation? I am so thankful for those who have poured into me and continue to pour into me, and I'm thankful for those of you here who pour into me. All, everybody pours into me in some way, but I've got people here I know that I can go to for advice, for encouragement, for constructive criticism when I need it. Are you pouring in to the people around you? And then the second thing that stands out to me is this. Will we choose to be obedient? Will we choose to be obedient? When we are called to do something, will we be obedient to that call? Joshua was the one who was called. He was called because the spirit that was within him, and because of that we see he was obedient, and his obedience was born out of faith. And I like what it says in Deuteronomy 31, 7 through 8. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all of Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into that land the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. And that's repeated to Joshua over and over and over again. Be strong and courageous. God is on your side. God is with you. You just need to have faith. You just need to be obedient. And he would make mistakes. Here's the thing. I don't know if you know this or not, but every single person makes mistakes except one person who didn't. But here's the thing. He was obedient. We see it in his story in Numbers. We'll see it later in Joshua. He is obedient. And when we get close to the end of the life of Joshua, I like what it says in Joshua 24, 14 through 15. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. 
And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You can choose those gods if you want to, but guess what? As for me and my family, we are going to choose to worship, to follow the Lord. And that's the question. Will we be obedient? Deuteronomy 11.1 1, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Will we be obedient in those things? Will we choose to listen to the Spirit where he leads and guides and directs? Will we follow the commands and decrees of the Lord? And I find it fitting as we wrap up our series On the book of Numbers this morning, we can think about how many times the nation of Israel disobeyed and argued and grumbled. They lost their faith. They lost their patience. And so many times they failed to be obedient. That's been the through line of this whole series. And I would ask the question, are we going to be obedient in faith? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do... We know the truth. We're not always obedient. As much as I hope we desire to be obedient in all things, there are just a lot of times where we are not. We fall short. Again, Scripture tells us that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But there is good news this morning. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, we can find forgiveness. We can find forgiveness because we know we serve a God who forgives. We know because of the work of Christ, we can be forgiven. Psalm 86.5 says this, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And maybe you're here this morning and you've not been living in a life of faith, you've not been living a life of obedience, maybe you've never given your life to him at all. You can do that this morning. On your connect cards and the chairs around you up here, I'd love to talk with you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've just gotten off track. We all sin, fall short of the glory of God. We're, as much as we want to, sometimes we don't let the spirit lead or guide or direct. We let the, the flesh do that. And maybe you're here this morning and you need to go before the Lord and lay down those things that have been attacking you, those things of the flesh that have been getting at you. Lay those before God. You can do that this morning as well. Wherever you're sitting, you can pray. You can pray with me. I'd love to pray with you. Man, are we going to remember his holiness? He is holy. The heavenly host declares his holiness. So should we. And are we going to spend our time praying that God would bring up leaders, those people, that next generation who's going to serve him? Are we seeking his heart? Are we seeking to be filled with the Spirit? Each and every day we're seeking to live by the Spirit, through the Spirit, through his power, his strength. Are we seeking out his will? Are we seeking out his direction? Seeking to be filled by the Spirit. If you're here this morning and you have a decision to make, pray that you do so as we stand and we sing together.
peace that leads the sinner.